podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. What's good, boys and girls? Two-footed podcast on Thursday, the 22nd of September, brought to you by EPLindex.com and our presenting sponsor, Liberty Shield. Liberty Shield is a VPN provider. A virtual privacy network allows you to go online, change your location, access things you geoblock from, while also keeping your data safe. So go to LibertyShield.com and use the code EPL25. That's EPL25 to get 25% off at checkout. We're also brought to you by Home of Hopcroft, a giftware and homework company located in Scotland, but shipping worldwide. Check out homeofhopcroft.co.uk. And finally, do check out the EPL Index and Anfield Index shops, which you can find on Etsy. Use the codes EPL10 or RED10 to get 10% off at checkout. Right, folks. It is Thursday, so we do have some questions today. But before we do that, I didn't get time to talk about West Ham yesterday. Now, they've had not quite as bad a start as Leicester, but it's not far off. And given the expectations on them, it might even be a little bit more disappointing. So West Ham have played seven games, one win, one draw, five defeats. They've only scored three goals and they have conceded nine. In the Europa Conference League, they've played four games. And to their credit, they have won all four of them. But I have noticed a lot of dissension regarding David Moyes. And I can kind of understand it. And it's a little bit of an awkward situation for the club. Now, unlike with Leicester, who I think should be firing Brendan Rodgers, but reports today... Uh, that they're prepared to give him a little bit more time, which is just baffling. With West Ham, Moyes hasn't done anything to warrant dismissal. And he is trying to bed in a number of new players. But I think the bigger question with West Ham and with Moyes is, what is your end, end goal? Where do you want to get? Do you want to be a top four team? Is that the purpose of what you're trying to do and if the answer to that is yes which I assume it is then I don't know that David Moyes can get you there because I don't think he's quite good enough to get them into the top four I think Moyes is sort of a sixth to eighth ceiling on what he's capable of with a team Tactically, he's a little bit outdated. There are parts of what he does that are very, very interesting. There are certainly good signs in terms of how he copes with players and how he manages individuals and how he gets the best out of people. 
But I do think he is limited. He hasn't had the, the broadest footballing experiences. I know he did manage Real Sociedad for a wet week, but let's be fair. He's largely just been a British manager in Britain playing British football. There's no real foreign influence in anything that he does. So there's no real modern influence on most of what he does. <clears throat> now, I think Moyes is a good manager. And I would give him more time here. Because I do think there's a lot of good that can come out of this current West Ham team. But I do think he also needs to change his tactical approach. Now, you look at what they've done at West Ham over the summer. And they've brought in Agard, Ariola, Flynn Downs, Skimaka, Cornet, Carrer, Palmieri, and Paqueta. It's a lot of players to bring in, obviously. But it's a lot of good players. There's not one of them, bar maybe Emerson Palmieri, who I'm not a fan of, that you'd look at and you'd be a little bit worried about. But what there is, is there's a couple of players in that group who should be starting, but aren't. Now, Ariola is first on that list. Ariola is a better keeper than Fabianski and has been for years at this point. But yet Fabianski remains first choice. Moyes needs to bite the bullet on this one. He needs to make that change. He needs to go to Ariola and give him a prolonged run in the team. Because Fabianski's best days are well behind him. And yes, he is still a good shot stopper, but there are a number of glaring weaknesses in his game. He's not particularly good on crosses. He's not very good at the ball at his feet. His judgment is a little bit off, and he is prone to concentration lapses. Now, with that said, Ariola is also prone to concentration lapses, but he's better on crosses. He's better with his feet, and I think he's a better shot stopper as well. So Ariola needs to be starting. Then you've got the defence. Sufal has not started the season well. Neither of the Czech lads have started the season well. But Ben Johnson hasn't been fully fit. Now, I've seen some people suggest that Tilo Carrere could be used at right back. He can't. He played right back when he was at PSG, and it completely torpedoed his career. The reason he was used there for PSG was so that his pace could help protect Thiago Silva and carry on the myth that Thiago Silva is still an elite-level centre-back at the expense of others. But what Carrere could do really well is play on the right of a back three. And having him on the right of it and Agard when he's fit on the left of it would be very, very strong, especially with Zuma in the middle. Zuma's pace, his aerial dominance his aggression would work well in the middle of a back three with Carrere and Agard either side. Now, obviously, Agard's injured. He'll be back probably in a month. You could use Ogbonna there. You could use Cresswell there in the short term. If you're going to play Emerson Palmieri, he's got to be used as a wing back. He just has to be. That is his best role. The issue is I don't think you've got anyone who's good enough to play right wing back. Now, Sufal's a good player, and I think 
Ben Johnson is a good player, but they're very much fullbacks rather than wingbacks. But Sufal is a decent crosser. So you could use him as a right wing back in the short term until you figure out a plan to bring in a better option. In midfield, if you're playing a back three with wing backs, I think you'd want to go with a three-man midfield, one defensive midfielder, one connector, and one attacking midfielder. The defensive midfielder is Rice. The attacking midfielder is Paqueta. The connector, depending on who you're playing against, could be Flynn Downs, if you want a bit more defensive solidity, or Pablo Fernals, if you want a bit more of an attack-minded player. So you have options. Suchek has been really poor for about 12 months now. He's lost a bit of mobility, and he didn't have much to begin with. Teams have figured him out a little bit on set pieces as well, so he's no longer offering that goal threat. And he just doesn't look himself at all. Now, he was overplayed last season, as was Rice. But it's had, obviously, no real effect on Rice, who's been fine this season. But Suchek has fallen off a cliff. And that has been the case since probably just before Christmas of last year, that he's just looked really worn down. But if you did something like that in midfield, you've got Rice with Suchek as the backup, Downs or Fornals with the other as the backup, and then Paqueta with Benrama as the backup. And you've all of a sudden got a really nice balanced midfield group that should work in pretty much any circumstance with any combination being used. You've got your... Wing backs, like I say, you'd want an upgrade at right wing back, but Sufal will be fine. Johnson's fine as a backup, or vice versa. Palmieri, Cresswell as the backup, that's fine. Agard with um, Albana as the backup is fine. Zuma with Dawson as the backup is not perfect, but it'll do. And then you've got Carrera. There's no natural backup in the squad for him. But Ben Johnson can also slot in there as the right side in a three. So you're okay. And then up front, you've got to play Skamaka and one of Cornet or Bowen. Now, Bowen is obviously the player who is in possession of a starting role in this team and has earned that over the last sort of 18 months. But he hasn't started this season well. But it should be Skimaka and one of those two with Antonio and the other of those two as the backups or the Europa League pair. And that would be a really strong squad for Newcastle, for, for West Ham in a in a 3-5-2. You could go at it with a 4-3-3. Um, there's no doubt for me that you could play Agard and Zuma, Agard and Carrere and be fine, then let's say it's Zuma and, and Agard with Carrera and Ogbonna as the backups and Dawson is just your fifth centre-back. Not massively keen on Palmieri as a full-back, but Palmieri with, with Cresswell, those two competing. Sufal and Johnson, that's fine. Midfield, 
Again, you've got Rice. Suchek should be his backup. Paqueta as an eight is ideal. He is fantastic as an eight. Now, I will say Ben Rama is less less suited as an eight, so you wouldn't use him there. But you could use Lanzini as an eight. You could use Connor Coventry as an eight. You could use Fornals as an eight. And Flynn Downs obviously can play as an eight. So you do have a strong group of eights. Paqueta plus one, and then you've got the rest as cover. And then in attack, again, Skimaka up front. In this scenario, you could play Bowen one side, Cornet the other, and have pace both sides. You could play Bowen one side and Antonio the other, or Cornet one side and Antonio the other. I would personally go with Bowen and Cornet either side of Skimaka. Antonio off the bench. Ben Rama can also play in one of the wide roles. So can Lanzini to an extent. Um, and there's always a couple of good young attacking players coming through the West Ham Academy. Now, Armstrong Oko Flex, uh, the Irish winger, he's currently out on loan at Swansea, I want to say. Swansea. Um, but you can always bring him back in January if, if you want and use him in that kind of position. Um, so... I, I just think either the 3-5-2 or the 4-3-3 would suit what West Ham have a lot better, get more out of these players. But you also have to play your best players. You have to put your best players on the pitch, and that involves making changes. And some of them are going to be tough. Like Fabianski has been a really good servant to West Ham United. He's been there now for four years, and he has done everything Moyes has asked of him. But he's 37, and he is past his best, and Ariola is a better goalkeeper. So play Ariola. Thomas Suchek has been largely very good since arriving at the club, but he's not playing well. And he's far less effective now than he was in his first sort of year and a half at the club. And he's far less mobile. And maybe a break is all he needs. Maybe you take him out of the team, you give him six weeks out, plays 15 minutes here, 20 minutes there, plays the Europa League or the Conference League, back to the league, 15 minutes, 20 minutes, Conference League plays 90. And maybe that gets him back in line. And maybe then you get the Thomas Suchek that you had earlier in his tenure at the club. And that can only be a good thing. Aaron Cresswell has played most every game under Moyes, but it is time to try something else. And Mikel Antonio, I mean, the guy has been outstanding for West Ham over the years. And this is his eighth season at the club. And he has earned everybody's respect, but you paid a massive amount of money to bring in one of the best young strikers in world football. And the guy has three goals in four games in the conference league, but you're not giving him proper opportunities in the premier league. You're not putting him in this, in situations where he is going to be able to perform at his best level. I think West Ham's, Issues are easy to fix. I think they're all internally fixable. 
I don't know that I look at the West Ham squad and think, oh, you definitely need to go and, and upgrade that one position. If I walked into the job tomorrow, I'd probably look at right back. I'd probably still look at left, well, I'd definitely look at left back. But I wouldn't need to go and buy those players. It's not screaming out to me. Same thing with that connecting role in midfield, someone to link Rice to Paqueta. It doesn't scream out, fix me now. It just sort of says, mm, at some point down the line, have a look here. You might like to bring in one more wide forward for depth and rotation purposes. But again, it's not screaming out. West Ham's issues are internally fixable. The only question mark I have on West Ham is can they overachieve beyond what Moyes is capable of? Can Moyes take them to another level than where he's gotten them? And I think he has managed that team brilliantly for the last couple of years. Now, I criticised them last season because I thought they got too heavily invested in the European campaign and let their league form slip. And if you look at their end-of-season form in the league, it wasn't particularly good. You know, you can go back to, say, they won their first two games in January, and after that, they only won five league games from the 16th of January to the end of the season. They lost at home to Leeds. That was a bad result. They lost away to United. That's fair enough. Drew at Leicester, fine. Drew at Newcastle. Newcastle were on a great run. That's fine. Lost to Liverpool. Lost to Spurs. They're fine. Lost to Chelsea. Lost to Arsenal. That's okay. Disappointing defeat against Brighton. Bad draw against Burnley. I would say a bad defeat away to Brentford as well. They only beat Norwich, who were awful, Everton, who were awful, Villa, who were awful, Watford, who were awful, and Wolves. Wolves, by far, the best team they beat from December 4th onwards. They beat Chelsea on December 4th, and after that, they beat Norwich twice, they beat Watford twice, they beat Villa and Everton and the two good wins I'd give them will be Crystal Palace away and Wolves at home. Everything else is gimmies. So that is a concern, for sure. Especially when you consider that, you know, in early February when they beat Watford, they were fourth in the league. They finished seventh, but they were fourth in the league as late as February. And they'd been fourth in the league for a large chunk of the first half of the season. They should have finished above United last year. They really should have finished above United. They were a better team than United last year. But because they had such a small squad and because their focus was so heavily on the Europa League, the league fell by the wayside, and it all turned out to be for nothing when Eintracht Frankfurt knocked them out in the semi-finals. But no one can take away that they did have a great run in Europe. I mean, they knocked out Sevilla. They knocked out Lyon. These were big scalps for them. So I do think it is excusable that they had that bad run at the end of last season, but it's not excusable for them to have had 
this bad run. Losing to City is fine. You lost to Norwich at home, sorry, away from home in their first game back in the Premier League at the City ground since the 90s. So I'd give you a pass on that. But the 2-0 defeat at home to Brighton, I mean, you were so comprehensively outplayed, it was actually a little bit embarrassing. You did beat Villa, who are awful. You drew with Spurs and looked much better. But then the Chelsea game, you were one up and you just threw it away. And then losing to Everton is unforgivable because they're awful. They are genuinely awful. And don't listen to anybody who tells you that Frank is building anything. Parking the bus and playing counter-attack football and keeping your fingers crossed is not building something. Everton have parked the bus against bottom half teams this season. Teams they should be going out to beat. And West Ham had all the best chances in that game. Begovic made a couple of good saves. They hit the post. Did a couple that just drifted wide of the post. Other than the Everton goal, I'm really struggling to think of a decent Everton chance. There was the Damari Gray cross shot. That's kind of about it, other than the goal. The goal itself is an excellent goal, but also it's bad defending by Carrere. Should be tighter to Mopé in that situation. I don't worry about West Ham. I don't, there's no risk of them going down. And as I say, I don't think you can sack Moyes because I think he's done such an outstanding job in the last two seasons that he warrants at least this full season. And if you finish in 12th to 13th, maybe then you move on from him. But at the same time, if he gets you 6th or 7th again, I still think you could justify moving on from him on the grounds of there is a ceiling on what David Moyes is capable of achieving. And our ambitions are bigger. But you tried that before. Let's not forget. You had him and you binned him off because you had bigger ambitions. Now, if you were telling me that West Ham were going to get Pochettino in the door or Thomas Tuchel in the door, I'd say fair enough. But I just, I don't see Thomas Tuchel taking that job. And I don't know that Pochettino would either. Now, I can see why Pochettino would be attracted to the job. There's a lot of good players there. There's a decent amount of money to spend. He loved living in London. And he's not an elite level manager. Tuchel's an elite level manager. Pochettino is that level below, wants to become an elite level manager, and at times at Spurs looked like he was well on the way, but he's not there yet. So Pochettino could look at it and be be attracted by it, the same way I think he could be attracted by the Villa job, especially with this new owner at West Ham, um, Kretensky. Kratinsky, who seems to be very, very ambitious and I believe has plans to buy more of the club's shares, to buy a, a chunk of David Sullivan's ownership. 
the moment he has 27%. Sullivan is just under 39%. Uh, David Gold has 25%. Albert Smith has 8%. And then there's other investors who've got a, just over 1%. So maybe he buys up Albert Smith's. Maybe he buys a bunch of Sullivan's. And maybe he goes on to become the, the primary owner and the primary decision maker. And West Ham take a big leap forward. But I, I don't know that Gold and Sullivan uh, are interested in selling the remainder of their shares. I mean, David Gold is 86 years of age, so it is possible that he is considering it. David Sullivan's only 73. Um, and Gold, I don't think, has kids who'd be interested in coming in to run the team. I mean, his daughter is the CEO of Aaron Summers. And his other daughter is the managing director of Aaron Summers. Would either of them want to switch to football? I, I, I don't see it. Hmm. Gold might be the one who'll sell up. Sullivan, I don't think will, and obviously his his son is is involved in West Ham. Jack, um, he's a director at the club now. He's a director, I think, in name only, and I think he I think he does have involvement in the actual running of the women's football team. But I I don't I don't know what the plans would be for the ownership. But if if Kratinsky was going to make a big move, bringing in a Pochettino would be. A big statement, big statement of intent, like we are going to compete for top four. And in that case, I can I can absolutely justify you moving on from Moyes. But I just don't think there's any grounds to do it now. I know the football's not great. I know it's a little bit un uninspiring at times. And Moyes needs to adapt to the fact that he does have better players now. Like it was one thing when he was playing this brand of football with lesser talented players. But now he's got a team that can stand up with most teams in the league. Not your Liverpool or your City, but certainly with the rest. I think they could go toe-to-toe -to -toe with pretty much any of them. With Arsenal, with United. With, not with Spurs, but with Chelsea. While Chelsea are in this transition phase, I think there is the players at West Ham, or there are the players at West Ham, to put together an eleven that could go toe-to-toe. -to -toe. They don't still have enough quality depth. They don't have enough, uh, enough match winners outside of the best eleven. Whereas you look at Arsenal, and they've always got one or two on the bench. Same thing with United. That's where West Ham would need to look next. Now, it could be that Antonio off the bench would just be a weapon. Ben Rama off the bench, that's fairly strong. If you had Ben Rama, Fornals and Antonio off the bench, that would be fairly strong with Rice, Downs and Paquette in midfield, Bowen, Skimaka and uh, Corne up front. That would be really strong. West Ham just need to be patient. A lot of new players in, 
Moyes needs to get them into the team. And he needs to, like, results are bad anyway. So there's no real excuse not to put players in and say, right, we'll just let you play your way into form. Results are bad anyway. You're not going to cause a drop-off. Things can't get worse. So why not make the changes now? I would still give Moyes time, but I would always keep one eye on the fact that there is a, a limit on where Moyes can get you. That's where I think they differ with Leicester. Because Leicester's squad, as they went over yesterday, I think Leicester's squad is really strong. Now, there, are, there are a couple of screaming out needs in that squad. Goalkeeper, centre-back. As soon as you walk in the door, you've got to address them. The others you can fix in time. There's the replacement for Thielemans and I think I said a wide forward and a, a depth centre-back. Those you can get down the road. But day one, you need a goalkeeper and a centre-back. You've got to be looking at January to get those players in immediately, even if it means going the loan market and paying a sizable loan fee to get one of them in. West Ham, I don't think, have that kind of standout need. I think it is a good squad. I think there's talent there. I just think Moyes needs to be a little bit braver. A little bit braver. And maybe what he actually needs is he needs his owners to tell him, look, you're not in any under any pressure here. We've trusted you with this big expenditure this summer. And we trust you to make the right decisions and get the best players in the best positions for us to win football matches. It's a long season. And we're also not just looking at this season. We're also looking at next season. Now, speaking of the long term at West Ham, this is something I'm not on board with. Former West Ham captain Mark Noble will return to the club as sporting director from January 2023. I don't like this at all. Mark Noble has zero experience as a sporting director. He has zero experience working in the front office of a major football club. He has zero experience working in the front office of any football club. Um, he is to take up the role from the 2nd of January 2023. He has been doing a entertainment, media and sports business leadership course at Harvard, Harvard Business School. That doesn't in any way prepare him to run a football club, to run the football operations at a football club. Uh, it sounds like he's going to have quite a wide-ranging portfolio, but that negotiations will not be let down to him. And again, I, I don't really like this. I mean, who's going to be handling the negotiations then? The fact that Moyes seemingly is one of the driving forces behind this, that concerns me. The manager should never, uh, not never, but largely never, should never, ugh, the manager should largely never have any input in the appointment of a sporting director. The sporting director operates above the manager. The sporting director is the most senior person on the football side of the football club. Unless you have something like a, a president of football operations or a a general manager type thing. I think, what's Beppe Marathas? 
supports Pepe Morata's title at CEO for sport. Pepe Morata is the CEO for sport. He's not the CEO of the company. He's CEO for sport at Inter Milan. Unless you have something like that, which is basically president of football operations, the sporting director should be the top guy on the football side of a football club. And he is the one responsible for implementing the structure and maintaining the structure. That means that if the manager leaves, the machine can continue to function and you just replace the manager. You're replacing one cog. You're not having a complete clear out. I get that Mark Noble is somewhat of a West Ham legend, though. I mean, he was never much more than an average player. But this is, I think this is a really poor decision by West Ham. I really do. Like when Mark Noble walks into a room to meet with a player, it the player is the player going to know who he was? If the player is from a different league, is he going to be aware of Mark Noble? Is Mark Noble going to have some sort of pull, some sort of draw? Then maybe he do, maybe he's going to be very good at the job. I I think the smarter move would have been to appoint a real sporting director and appoint Noble as like an assistant sporting director with a, a narrower focus on one or two areas which could then be expanded out or put him as, I don't know, in charge of looking after players who are out on loan or something. But not this. Not This to me seems like there's restlessness among the fans. This will solve that. And I, I just don't know that Mark Noble's going to be up to doing this type of job. I know he loves the club. And that course he's done, fair play. But it's a couple of months course. It's not... It doesn't set him up to do this job at all. It would have been better not to mention it rather than make it sort of a focal point of his uh, of the announcement. Like, and see Simon Stone, senior football reporter. What did he say here? On a training pitch that has been named after him, Mark Noble said he didn't know what the future held, but his love for West Ham seeped out of every pore. This is what he said days after his retirement um, back at the end of last season. Under those circumstances, it is no surprise at all West Ham have appointed him in the sporting director role. He knows and is trusted both by owner David Sullivan and manager David Moyes, which means he will be able to pass on observations and use the knowledge gained at Harvard this summer to, for the benefit of the club. I'm sorry, this is just nonsense. It's absolute nonsense. We'll take a break. When we come back, we've got listeners' questions. See you in a sec. Right, welcome back. So first question is from Alex 
Who do you think will be some of the biggest snubs for the World Cup squads based on this international break? So there's a few noticeable ones. Um, might as well start, I suppose, with with England. Um, I think Jaden Sancho is going to be snubbed. Now, I don't necessarily disagree with not bringing Sancho because he was awful last season, but he is playing better this season. But, I mean, the idea that Jack Grealish should be in the squad ahead of him is hilarious to me. Uh, Sancho is a significantly better player than Jack Grealish and is certainly in better form. Uh, Spain, the one that stands out screaming is Thiago Alcantara, who should have about 100 caps for the national team. And instead of 46, um, this is in a world where Koke has 66 and is not nearly as good a player. I don't think Thiago will make the World Cup squad. I think he'll be left out. I think the midfield group that are in the squad this time is the midfield group he will pick for the World Cup. They're all very talented players, but nobody is going to convince me that Lorente, Koke, Carlos Soler, Rodri, Gavi, Pedri or Busquets are better in 2022 than Thiago. Uh, Rodri is the closest. And then I would say Pedri would be next. Then Busquets and Koke below. Busquets was obviously the best of the best, but he has fallen off quite a bit. But yeah, I, I think Thiago is probably the one who stands out there as the biggest snub. Um, for the Germans, I don't know actually. I mean, my assumption is if Wurtz gets fit before it, he'll be in, but I don't think he will. Um, so if he is, I assume uh, Max Arnold drops out. I think Germany you could maybe make the case for Lucas Klosterman. Now, I don't know if he was left out because he's injured. I don't think he's injured. But I would say he's probably the one that I'd look at there and say he deserves to be in the squad. Um, so yeah, I'll go with him for the Dutch. Ryan Gravenberch possibly wasn't picked in this squad. I think, and like, this is a squad where Ginny Wijnaldum's injured and he's still not in it, but the likes of Steven Berghaus is in it. Davy Klassen is in it. I, I think Gravenberch might miss out. Um, for the French. Lucas Hernandez is injured. He'll probably be, be in the squad if he's fit. Say Ibu Kanate will probably miss out because he's missed so much football. I would say the one that stands out who will I think will likely get snubbed, who should absolutely be not just in the squad but starting for them, is Theo Hernandez. I mean, Theo Hernandez is easily France's best left back. And yet he's not even in the squad. But Adrian Truffert is in the squad 
and Ferland Mendy are in the squad, and neither of them are as good as Theo Hernandez. Uh, in terms of Brazil, I don't know if this would be a snub. Because he only has three caps, but I don't think Gabriel Martinelli will make the cut. Now, looking at the group of Fords in this squad, there's Pedro from Flamengo. He's unlikely to be in. Rodrigo at Real Madrid, Matthias Cunha, Anthony, Rafinha, Vinicius Jr., Richarlison, Bobby Firmino, and Neymar. Gabriel Jesus and Gabriel Martinelli were not picked. I would... I would be fairly certain Gabriel Jesus will be picked for the World Cup. But I think Mark Nelly might be left out. Because you've already got Richarlison and Vinicius to play on the left. And Neymar can obviously play on the left as well. So if I had to guess, Mark Nelly will miss out there. And for the Argentines... Um, I don't actually think there's anyone. Juan Musa. Yeah, I'd say Juan Musa. Like, I would absolutely have him in over Geronimo Rulli. I think Juan Musa is a very good goalkeeper. Now, Emmy Martinez would be my first choice. I can understand bringing Franco Armani. He's been outstanding for years for uh, River Plate and Atletico Nacional before that. But Juan Musa should be the third keeper over Ruli. Um, I don't think there's any other ones that I'd look at and think that's that's a bit strange to me. Um, oh, Musa's injured, is he? Oh, I didn't know he was injured. I genuinely didn't know he was injured. Fractured cheek. Okay. If he's fit, he should go. Even like he's going to be third choice keeper. It makes little to no difference, but I I'd be bringing him. I think he's really good. I didn't know he was injured. Um, outside of that, I don't think there's anybody really who'd stand out for me as being warranting of a place. You could certainly make an argument for Juan Voigt or Villarreal. Um, Lucas Acampos has never really been a regular in the squad. Nicolas Dominguez is one I'd bring personally because I do think he's a good player and he's a versatile player in midfield. But I, I don't know who you'd leave out. Um, of the unestablished ones, you have to bring Alexis McAllister with the form he's in. You have to bring Enzo Fernandez. He's the future of Argentinian football. I would say Thiago Almeida could miss out. Um, Lo Celso, I'd probably bring. Papu Gomes, uh, Gomez, I'd probably bring. Nico Gonzalez, yeah, I'd be bringing him. It wouldn't surprise me if one of the Fords fell out. At the minute, you've got Julian Alvarez, Messi, Joaquin Correa, Angel Correa, Latura Martinez, and Dybala. 
Note there's not one of them who's a proper number nine. Um, Argentinian number nine is currently going through a dry spell. Giovanni Simeone is probably the best they have, and he's he's good. He's not great. Um, it wouldn't surprise me if somebody like Dybala missed out. But I think he'll end up going. Yeah, Nicolas Dominguez is the one I'd say deserves to go uh, from a midfield point of view. But I don't know who you'd leave out. Maybe Guido Rodriguez, but then he's he's been really good for for Real Betis. Um, Di Maria will go. It'll be his last World Cup. Uh, Paredes will go. Rodrigo de Paul will go. Alexis has to go. Yeah, I mean, I'll probably of the current squad, which is twenty nine players, and actually what is it twenty six for the World Cup? Am I right with that? Um, Almeida probably misses out. One of the forwards probably misses out, and one of the defenders probably misses out. So there's probably not room to sweep, to sneak anybody in. Um, but the RG should be fun at the World Cup. They should, and I do think there's a good era coming for Argentina once they get some more experience into players like Nehuen Perez, Christian Romero, obviously. Lissandra Martinez, uh, Nahuel Molina, who's the new right back at Atletico Madrid. Um, Nico Gonzalez, Alex McAllister, Enzo Fernandez, Thiago Almeida, Julian Alvarez. These are a lot of fun young players uh, with big futures. And there's Garnacho at United as well, who's very, very talented. Uh, and keep an eye on the Carboni brothers. Not for this World Cup, but down the line. Uh, Valentin and Franco. They're the son of Ezekiel Carboni, who people might remember. Knocked around for a long time. He was at Red Bull Salzburg back before they were kind of what they are now. Um, was there sort of at the start of their growth. Um, he was a decent player. These are his kids. They both play for Inter Milan. Keep an eye on them. One's a defender. One's a midfielder. But they're very, very talented. Um, right. Andy Wales asked, they didn't ask me, I just saw him ask it on Twitter, to pick a, a starting 11 made up of the big six clubs, but only two players per club. No more than two players per club. Uh, so I thought I'd have a go with this. So I was thinking about this earlier, and obviously Liverpool and City deserve to have a lot more than two. So you're leaving out multiple world-class players from both clubs. But what you're trying to do is pick the best players from the other clubs who can then be, I suppose, brought along by these better players. Um, if that makes sense. They might, like, for example, I'm going to pick Bakayo Saka on the right of my front three. No, I'm not. I'm going to pick Raheem Sterling on the right of my front three. Raheem Sterling is not as good as Mo Salah, but I want two other Liverpool players in my team, so I'm going to go with Sterling. Um, I'm going to pick Harry Kane as my number nine. I think that's an obvious one that I think most people would have. I'm going to pick Bakayo Saka on the left wing. Now, him and Sterling can be swapped either way. Youngman's son is better than Saka and Sterling. 
But again, I want that other Spurs player somewhere else because I want Christian Romero as one of my centre-backs. I want Virgil van Dijk as one of my centre-backs. There's my two Liverpool players used up. I'm going to go Cucurella at left-back. I'm going to pick Zhao Canseo at right back, is he as good as Trent? No, he's not as good as Trent, but he's very, very good. And Canseo, Romero, Virgil, and Cucurella is, in my view, outstanding. Kevin De Bruyne is my second City player. Casemiro is going to be my first United player. So I've got City by two, Spurs by two, Chelsea by two. I've got Liverpool by one, Arsenal by one. And United by one. And I have two positions left to fill. I need another midfielder. And I need a goalkeeper. The best goalkeeper of the group is Alison Becker. So that's why I'm picking him. I'm getting the best goalkeeper. I've got the best goalkeeper and the two best centre-backs available to me. Now... Casemiro, Rodri and Fabinho, for me, are all on about the same level. There's no standout one among those three right now. So it doesn't matter to me which one I get, but it makes more sense to take Casemiro because then I take two other Liverpool players, Alisson and Virgil, and two other City players, De Bruyne and Kinsale. So I need a midfielder. And he has to come from United or Arsenal. Now what I could do is play Saka in midfield and maybe pick, I don't know, Rashford or Sancho. I could take Christian Eriksen. I could take Granite Jacket, who's had a good start to the season, but you know my feeling on Granite Jacket. And in fairness, Arsenal have had such an easy start that I don't put much into it. So I think the one I'm going to take is Christian Eriksen. Because the one I would want is Thiago, but I can't have him and have Virgil and Alisson at the same time. So... I think Eriksen can do the job there. Now, the other option I would have is I could pick Ilkay Gundogan and go with a different right-back. So, for example, I could go with maybe Tommy Asu at right-back. And that might be the better thing to do. 
that might actually be the better thing to do. If I switch Saka to the right, Sterling to the left, then Saka, then Saka and Cucurella are my width. Yeah, that's what I'll do. Do you know what? That's what I'll do. I'll go Ilke Gundigan. Now, why not Bernardo Silva? Because De Bruyne and Gundigan play better together than De Bruyne and Silva. In the same way, Silva and Gundigan play, play better together than Silva and De Bruyne. So, I know Tommy Asu is not for everybody, but I think he's outstanding. I think he's brilliant defensively. And if he stays fit, he is the best defensive right back in the league by a considerable margin. So that's my team. Allison, Tommy Asu, Romero, Van Dyke, Cucurella, De Bruyne, Casemiro, Gundigan, Sterling, uh, Saka, Kane, and Sterling. And I'm pretty happy with that. Two from City, two from Liverpool, two from Spurs, two from Chelsea, two from Arsenal, and one from United. Which makes sense. United are the worst of the big six. And the only other player who'd really have a strong case, Ericsson, I think, has a case, but Varane would be the other one, but Romero's better than Varane. So I'm going to go with that. I'm quite happy with how that team worked out. Uh, let's check Discord and see if there's anything here for today. If not, we've got a nice early finish and we can be out. Let's see. Um, probably should have checked this beforehand. Right, fact 1977. Question for the pod. Watching Grealish silence his critics because he ran, up, ran into an unholy... Kevin De Bruyne pass made me think of the old quote, a fire hydrant playing with Wayne Gretzky could score 40 goals a season. What would be the ceiling for an enamored object on a KDB team and would, would it outscore uh, Grealish playing at Villa? So obviously the issue you'd have is that that object couldn't move. But let's say somebody was to push an object around. So let's say you put let's say City with all their money just hired someone to push a wheelie bin around. And the wheelie bin is allowed to touch the ball, but the person pu pushing the wheelie bin is not. If the person pushing the wheelie bin touches the ball, it's immediately a free kick to the opposition team. So could a wheelie bin score more goals for City with De Bruyne and all the rest than Grealish at Villa? I would say yes. I would say yes. Because... Like, look at the goals that Haaland is scoring this season. Now, don't get me wrong. It's tremendous. The movement of Haaland is outstanding. The pace is incredible. But it's very simple what he's doing to get himself in these positions. It's not revolutionary. Jack Grealish in the Premier League scored eight goals in his best season. Eight and 36 in his first season back with Villa after relegation when they barely survived. Yeah, I think if you had someone running into the box pushing, <laughs> pushing a, a wheelie bin, they could probably deflect 
eight to nine goals into the into the goal. Probably. Because De Bruyne's delivery is incredible. And Haaland's put in so many can't-miss positions. Like, Grealish hasn't silenced anybody. Grealish has been awful. And he scored against... Um, Wolves, but I mean, that's all he did. He picked the ball up, he ran forward a little bit, he checked back, he passed it backwards. Got the ball, ran forward, checked back, passed it backwards. Got the ball, ran forward, checked back, passed it backwards. And the analytics weirdos were grabbing hold of lube and tissues because, oh, look at the progressive dribbles. Look at the progressive carrying yards. It just tripe. Absolute tripe. Grealish is very talented, but Grealish needs the entire team built around him. Or he just, he doesn't offer enough. He just doesn't offer enough. Anyway, would you rather have a career in which you have a full trophy cabinet of league title medals from the top tier and secondary tier leagues, a CL and Europa League title, and some other domestic cups from those respected leagues, but are, are a journeyman sporadic squad player and eventually labelled as having a decent to good career, or retire as a world legend labelled as one of the best of your generation and as a one-club player, but you have a very small trophy cabinet and never really went deep in the CL or Europa League. Um, I would probably take the former, to be honest. I would probably take the cabinet full of medals and hope that I live a really long time. And by the time I'm really old, everybody who was around when I was playing has died and I can just lie and tell people I was the best player in the world. Look at all these trophies that I won single-handedly. Um, I mean, look, if you... Now, with one exception, um, you're basically talking, would you rather be James Milner or Steven Gerrard? Steven Gerrard obviously did go very far in the European Cup, won one, got to a final. But Steven Gerrard, trophies. Won Champions League one UEFA Cup, two FA Cups, and three League Cups. He also won a Super Cup and a Community Shield. So we're not going to count them because they're not real trophies. They're friendlies. Two, four, seven. Steven Gerrard, for his career, won seven medals. James Milner, on the other hand, Two Premier League titles with City. FA Cup, League Cup with City. Premier League, FA Cup, League Cup, Champions League. James Milner has won more than Steven Gerrard. He's won three league titles that Gerrard doesn't have. He's won as many European Cups. He's won as many FA Cups. He's won one less League Cup and one less UEFA Cup. James Milner is a journeyman. 
he is a squad player for good clubs. Milner, the starter, won nothing. Milner, the squad player, won all of that stuff. Milner's record in finals when he starts is appalling. When he comes off the bench or is just a squad player, it's really good. Um, so, yeah, I mean, who would you rather be, James Milner or Stephen Gerrard? You'd rather be Stephen Gerrard, obviously. But then you look at somebody like John O'Shea. And John O'Shea was a fairly average player who had a, a long career. Let's not take anything away from him. But, you know, he never really established himself as first choice at United. He won five league titles. He won an FA Cup. He won two league cups and a European Cup. So less domestic cup success than Gerrard, but obviously much greater league success than Gerrard. Who would you rather be, Gerrard or John O'Shea? You'd rather be Stephen Gerrard. Now... The one to look at would be Nacho at Real Madrid, career squad player. He is now 32 years of age. He's been at Real since he was 11. Um, Been in the first team picture since 2011. And let's look at what he's won. Three league titles, a Copa del Rey, three Super Cups, five European Cups, four World Club Cups and three Super Cups. He has had a much more successful career than Steven Gerrard. You know, three league titles, five European Cups. But he's probably started, of his 389 career games, he had 111 for Real Madrid's reserve team, 278 for the first team, across 11 seasons. He's probably started maybe 150 of them, 160 maybe. But yet he's got European Cups and he's got Champions Leagues coming out of his ears. So who would you rather be? I mean, in that situation, I'd probably rather be Nacho. Five European Cups. You win five European Cups, that's that's fairly special. That's the very... And to hang around at one club like Real for that long, there has to be something about you. But, like, you know, you have to accept your role. Last season, he won a European Cup and a league title. He played 2,500 minutes across all competitions. So he was a valuable player to them. The year before, he played 2,700 minutes. But this is as a squad player. This is one week he's right back, then he's centre back, then he's out of the team for two games. Season before that, he played 686 minutes, but he ended the year with a league title. 18 19, 2488 minutes. 17 18, they won a European Cup. And he played 3,200 minutes. He was a starter for a lot of that season because of it, because of injuries. But like when Wes Brown was a starter for United for a lot for one season, Do you know, like he he did play quite a lot over the years, but he was never a first choice player. Like 15, 16, they won a European Cup. He played 1,600 minutes. Uh, 13, 14, they won the European Cup as well, didn't they? And he played. 1,300 minutes. 
wasn't in the squad for the semi-final of the final. But he still got his medals. You know, Wes Brown, he had a very distinguished career. And Wes Brown honours. Five league titles, two FA Cups, two League Cups, two European Cups. But in Wes's career, he was probably only a starter for two seasons. 2000-2001, he was establishing himself as Yap Stam's partner. And then 07-08, he stepped in when Gary Neville missed the whole season. Played 52 games in all competitions. One of only two seasons in which he went over 40 games. In fact, over 37 games. Uh, the other being that 2000-2001 season that I mentioned. So Wes Brown won a ton at United. And then when he went out away from the bubble to become a starter, you know, Sunderland, Blackburn, and uh, Kerala Blasters in India, he learned that life is different. So who would I rather be? In most cases, I'd rather be your Steven Gerrard. Now, if you're saying without that European Cup, that is more difficult. That is more difficult. So if you're talking about would I rather be James Milner or Matt Letizier, I'd rather be James Milner than Matt Letizier. I guarantee you, James Milner, if you if you could work the inflation out on what Letizier was earning during his career and make it into modern money, I bet Milner's made more than him. I bet Milner's made more than him. Remember, Liverpool paid Milner seven and a half million a year from 2015 to 2020. Then they paid him even more than that for two years. And they're still paying him a lot of money. Now, it's a lot less this season because he took a, a reduced wage. But it, his reduced wage also included a big appearance fee. So when he plays, he gets paid basically the same thing he has for the last couple of years. So Liverpool have paid Milner probably somewhere in the region of, including the signing fee, you're probably looking at... 45, 60. By the end of the season, they'll probably have paid him about 70 million. And that's just from his time at Liverpool. He was on good money at City as well because they paid a lot of money to get him. He was probably on the better part of 100 grand a week at City. So, you know, and he was only ever a squad player there as well. He played a lot. He was a squad squad player there, though, when they were winning things. He's a squad player at Liverpool when they've been winning things. When, they, when he was a starter, they won nothing. But he accepted his role. And Milner, to his credit, like if Milner had a bigger ego where he was insistent that he play and, you know, be the, one of the main guys in the team, Milner's career would have been at the Aston Villas and Leeds of the world, you know, mid-table teams because that's his level as a player if he was kind of I play one position and that's it and I want to play every week he'd have been playing mid-table football for his entire career but because he was willing to play anywhere and because he was happy enough to be a squad player and you know rotate in and out and whatever else he ended up having a much better career than he otherwise should have so I'd rather be Milner than you know one of those guys that stays at a club and doesn't win anything 
But I'd rather be Gerard than Milner. I'd rather be Gerard than John O'Shea or Wes Brown or even Nicky Butt. Um, I'd rather be Nacho though. Five five European Cups is is a little bit special. Like when you've got five European Cups, there's only a handful of clubs that have more than you. Here on or nine nine, do you think we'll ever see Mourinho manage at international level? I do actually. I do actually think Mourinho will move into international management. Um, I could see it potentially happening after. After he finishes up with Roma, I could see him doing it. What age is Jose now? Um, he is 59. He'll be 60 in January. It's crazy that he's going to be 60. Considering the special one when he arrived over just seems so young and vibrant. Um, yeah, I could see him taking over the Portuguese national team. I could. I could see him taking over the Portuguese job at some point. Post-Cristiano, I don't think he'd want to work with him because he'd have to drop him. Uh, Isaac Gilding, if you combine the Premier League, La Liga and Serie A to form a 60-team league, oh, God, what would the finishing order look like? I'll tell you what, I'll do this tomorrow. Just give me something to do for tomorrow. Um, I'll do this tomorrow. Premier League, La Liga, and Serie A to form a 60-team league. That's going to take some time. I'll do that one tomorrow. Uh, I'll finish up with the gossip. Borussia Dortmund value Jude Bellingham at around $130 million. Bellingham's first priority next summer would be a move to Real Madrid. That comes from a Real Madrid fanboy. Um, Netherlands midfielder Frankie de Jong says he always wanted to stay at Barcelona after turning down Manchester United 11 times. I only added part of that. Arsenal have contacted Jesper Lindstrom over a £17 million move from Eintracht Frankfurt in January. That could be a decent signing, actually. Arsenal could face competition from Brighton in their hopes of signing Michalo Mudrik. This is just a newspaper being lazy because the former Shakhtar manager is now the Brighton manager. Uh, Everton have had a bid of €30 million Euro turned down as Shakhtar went more than €50 million. Euro. Uh, this is according to the spoofer with the catchphrase. Flamengo's vice president says there's been no proposal for João Gomes, or João Gomes, who's been linked with both Liverpool and Manchester United. Manchester United were interested in offering Andreas Pereira, who they've termed as Belgium midfielder Andreas Pereira. Now, the last time I checked, Andreas Pereira, while, yes, born in Belgium, is a Brazilian international and therefore Brazil midfielder um, as part of a swap deal. Maybe. Probably just made up, though it is talk sport. So is it Alex Crook? Because he is, uh, no, it's somebody called Natasha Everett, who I've never heard of. Um, oh, it's from Tim Vickery. So in fairness, it may well be true. However, it, the fact remains, he is Brazil midfielder, not Belgium midfielder. Uh, Celtic manager Ange Postacoglu says, leaving the club to take charge of Leicester is not on my radar. Good to hear. He knows where his bread's buttered. 
Barcelona's 34-year-old Sergio Busquets is willing to join Inter Miami, co-owned by David Beckham at the end of his contract. Marco Asensio is not close to touring a potential move from Barcelona to Real Madrid to from Real Madrid to Barcelona. Uh, he might want to open a book and maybe read about his career for the last couple of years. The two-year contract signed in in July by Usman Dembele included a 50 million euro release clause, which would be valid next summer. Dembele would receive half of that fee after agreeing to waive a signing on bonus. So someone's going to take him up on that because that's a great price for a player of that talent. And he's playing incredibly well again. Uh, Barcelona have threatened to take legal action against El Mundo over publishing details of contract negotiations with Lionel Messi. Not really sure they can do that. No club matched the asking price for PSV Eindhoven's 23-year-old Dutch winger Cody Gakpo, who was linked with both Manchester United... Oh, sorry, who was linked with all of Manchester United, Southampton, Leeds and Arsenal. Um, Yeah, I mean, they wanted silly money and no one was willing to pay it, so he stays where he is. That is it. That is me for today. Thank you, as always, for listening. Uh, Alec... Sorry, no, Isaac, I will... I'll try and do that tomorrow. That is a monster, though. A 60-team league. Well, actually, yeah, 60-team league. It's the middle that's going to be hard to sort out here. Because I feel like the top and bottom is fairly straightforward. Like the top 10 and the bottom 10. It's the middle 40 that are going to be difficult. But I do think most of the mid-table Premier League clubs will be fairly high up there. Right, that'll do. I'll talk to you all tomorrow. Take care of yourselves. Bye-bye. Podcast Network.